0: Tour de France is almost here, and you can catch all of the action on Flow Bikes. Viewers worldwide can access daily content, including exclusive on site coverage, in depth interviews, expert analysis, and more. And if you live in Canada, you can watch all 21 stages live or on demand, plus FlowBikes Bikes is the exclusive home of the Tour de France fantasy cycling game in the United States and Canada. Subscribe now at FlowBikes.com slash That is F-L-O-Bikes.com forward slash VeloNews. And when you purchase a Flow Bike subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports Network of over 25 sports. Don't miss out. Sign up at FlowBikes.com slash That is F-L-O-Bikes.com forward slash VeloNews. Thanks to Flow Bikes for sponsoring this week's podcast. Let's get on with the show. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you busy Tuesday morning here at the Velo News home offices in Boulder, Colorado. Got a great view of the mountains. It is sunny. It is clear. I may go on a bicycle ride later, but I may not because... It is the lead-up week to the Tour de France, and that means there is so much going on in the VeloNews universe. We have Betsy Welch over in Africa reporting on the migration gravel race. We have all of our reporters, editors, contributors spinning all this analysis and preview content for the Tour de France. And the next three weeks are going to be busy here on VeloNews.com. And on the Vela News podcast, because we have a special treat for you. Uh, Vela News podcast is going to switch to four episodes a week during the Tour de France, and we are going to have a mixture of analysis from myself, Saevo Shea, Jim Cotton, and others, plus on the ground reporting from Andrew Hood and James Start who are going to be at the race. So we're going to be talking to the riders. We're going to be hearing from James and Andy about what it's like to be at the Tour this year and uh, getting their analysis on everything from like media access to the scuttlebutt to the rumor to all the fun stuff that comes from being at the Tour de France this year. So stay tuned and uh, mark your dials. We're going to be coming to your ears four days a week. And that's not the only change going on uh, in the news universe. Uh, the dot Velo-News, com is just—it's going to be our cup overfloweth with content uh, during the tour, as always. You know, the tour gives us an opportunity to just have a wave of reporting and content and storytelling. Uh, come onto the site, and this year's going to be no difference. Um, so here's the full rundown. Actually, this isn't the full rundown. This is the rundown that I can remember. There may be some additions uh, coming before the tour, but here's what we got coming to VeloNews.com in the next month. Daniel Oss is back doing his behind-the-scenes videos for us from the uh, Bora Hansgrohe team bus, the Bora Hansgrohe team dinner table, his uh, time with Peter Sagan. You may have watched some of those during the Giro Daniel is a natural on video and he's coming back. He's hilarious. You should definitely check that out. Those will be coming, I think, every other day or a few times a week during the tour. We have Tour de Hoodie. That's Andy Hood's daily column of what it's like to be on the ground at the tour. Lots of rumors and scuttlebutt, sights and sounds, tastes and smells, what uh, Andy is gonna be seeing at the tour. He'll have his daily column about that. Check out our Instagram feed, for daily instagram stories updates from james and andy they're going to be doing stuff like predicting the winners talking to fans giving us a view of what it's like to be at the tour um james is going to be doing a lot of updates from the stage so check out our instagram and then um, saivo shea and jim cotton are going to be continuing the unsung heroes um uh, series going throughout the tour that's Uh, The very human side of the race, human stories about some of the riders that we don't really get to hear from. Also, mechanical mechanics, director sportives, interviews and behind the scenes stories from people like that. I'm going to be doing a daily digest during the week full of hot takes uh, of the biggest stories from that day, plus sort of a rundown of what's going on in the bike social media space, plus the usual, you know, explainers, analysis. Uh, quick flips, news stories, and lots of tech, bike galleries, helmet galleries, uh, a look at all of the tech stories that are going to be shaping the tour, uh, plus the usual stuff like what the star said, GC analysis, and our coverage of La Course by the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia Donna, which are going on at the same time. So it's a busy three weeks. We have a ton going on at VeloNus.com, and uh, you should all... You know, tune in each day because we're going to have a lot of cool stuff coming to you from the race. And before uh, we get to the actual race, I wanted to have on a guest who have ha- I've had on uh, for a pre Tour de France podcast for the last few years. That is Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal to talk tour, to talk bike stuff, and to just kind of catch up with Jason to get a sense of what is going on in the bike space that's making its way to our uh, our casual viewers, the mainstream viewers out there, because the Tour de France every year is the big event that cuts through the clutter and gets to the casual viewer. But there have been some other bike stories recently that have done so. So we're going to catch up with Jason Gay and uh, hear what he has to say about everything going on in the bike space. So without further ado, here's my interview with Jason Gay. And now back on the podcast in what has become a tradition for the Vela News podcast in the lead up to the Tour de France. uh, It's the man who is forced cycling down the throats of more casuals than Mark Summers and the Little 500 combined. It's Jason Gay of The Wall Street Journal. Welcome back, Jason.
1: Thank you. Yes, I. that's what I strive for. Anytime you see a new person on the bike, blame me. Yeah, that, that's a great honor for it.
0: Jason, I always love linking up with you before the Tour de France, not because we're going to like talk about the strategies or the inner workings of the tour or anything, but it's just a good opportunity to check in with you because I love checking in with you, but also to get a sense of what out there in the cycling world is cutting through the clutter to make its way to uh, mainstream America in the form of uh, your columns. And, and there's a lot. We have Mark Cavendish and we have Justin Williams and we have sports psychology, mainstream events, Olympics. There's a lot going on in the sports world. And I feel like there's just a ton of opportunities in the coming weeks for cycling to to be right up there with the NBA playoffs, the uh, doldrums of the MLB season, and whatever is going on uh, in the NFL uh so Jason, thanks for making time for us.
1: Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you as always for the warm introduction and the invitation. And listen, I feel like in a weird way, this is like as close as we've swung back to normal. I know we had competitive racing in the fall of last year, but that wasn't really the whole package. And and now you see not just racing happening in Europe, but around the world and here in the United States and uh uh things are percolating it's been such a strange experience because it was we've talked about before and i know you've talked about uh on this show many times that there's a bit of a boom happening fred you can't get a bike in the united states It's really hard i mean it's like asking somebody to like you know design you a home or something like that it's you know you're looking at wait times uh months if you're lucky sometimes years um you know it's it shows a robust interest but uh you know such a weird thing to have a situation where you know people want the bikes and they can't get them.
0: That's right. I mean, I think that people are taking out second mortgages on their homes to shop on Craigslist now for like squeaky uh you know rusty chain mountain bikes. No, I mean, I've definitely definitely seen it here uh, at the Velo news. World Headquarters, we used to take it for granted that when we wanted to test out uh, new bikes, you know, new fancy new bike coming out there, and we're in the bike media, yeah. we don't get paid a lot, but one of the perks we get is we get to get first dibs on the new bikes, Yeah. reaching yeah. out, asking for these test bikes that the manufacturers are like, sorry, we sold them all, or they're on, you know, they're they're stuck in the Suez Canal behind that uh, that ship that's stuck there, or they're, you know. Right. We cannot locate them. No yeah. test bikes for
1: you. Yeah, like it, 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 we should be clear here, that it's not necessarily An issue of they don't have enough bikes. It's supply chain breakdown. So there was a piece in the journal recently in which they talked to a a small bike shop owner who was talking about just, you know, the shortage of parts and these parts are just sitting, as you said, on, you know, in steel containers on cargo ships and aren't able to get to where they're going. I have a question for you, though. Like, what's the deal with like I won't name the company, but like there was a bike that was introduced a while ago, not that long ago. And I was like, that's a cool bike. I would be interested, in maybe, you know, purchasing that bike. Can't purchase it. What's the point of this? Like, why are you like, you know, holding this carrot out in front of people? And then when they're like, I, I really like this thing, maybe I'll look at the buying it. You can't buy it. Well, I don't get it. Jason are you actually angry Dave
0: 036 on Twitter the guy who keeps uh, tweeting me whenever we put one of these uh, new bike stories up is that you
1: is that your burner is that your yes. burner handle Yeah yeah I have several burners but that is one of them yes. yes
0: no I mean it's it is a comment that we see again and again on our social media pages where people are people like cool great. Bike profile: The fancy new bike can't get it. You know, maybe I'll get the the new 2021 bike in 2025 when the parts come in. But like you said, I mean, the bike industry can't not market these new bikes. I mean, that you know, so much of their budget is going to the marketing and the supporting of the elite athletes. And if the bikes are out there and being ridden by the elite athletes, and thus being photographed and seen by media and put on our pages, you know, they're not going to just sort of put a halt to it or like lay off half of their engineering staff or whatever. But again, like you said, the, the, the big problem here is that a lot of times it's not even the frames. It's like the one little clamp that feeds right. into the component spec that allows them to spec out the bike, which allows them to get it to the shop, which allows it to get us us. And we've heard the same thing, you know, boxes of unbuilt fancy frames because they're waiting on, you know, five or six little parts, but they don't want to just replace it with like a hose clamp that you can buy for 69 cents down at local Home Depot because, ooh, that's not arrow. And so, uh, the whole thing is being held up. And this Jason cannot buy his fancy $12,000 bicycle.
1: Yeah, I assure you this was not a $12,000 bike, but it is. I mean, I get what you're saying about the marketing schematic of it. Like you put this out there, you whet people's appetite for it. You get them excited about buying it. But like when I'm watching TV and I see Pizza Hut coming out with the cheesy crust flaming pizza, like I want to get the cheesy crust pizza. I don't call Pizza Hut and they say like, yeah, that's available in 2022, June, maybe July. Like they, it's there. You get it then. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I, I, I... I, I'm, I'm worried about the backlash Fred
0: Well Jason then you are going to be Very happy about this year's Tour de France because we have The heads up that uh, half the teams of this year's Tour de France are actually going to be riding vintage Bikes aluminum <laughs> bikes with down tube Shifters because they couldn't get their Bikes either they're all going to like the pros Closet right
1: right race Never been raced frames you know that, that, that yeah. That's the, the nomenclature On all Craigslist
0: works works Good works good only crashed a few Times owned by a cat for um, no I mean it's going to be interesting to see I mean the bike shortage is a story we're covering here our sister publication bicycle retailer and industry news it's been the hot it's been the hot sheets for the bike shortage there, <laughs> but I don't have an answer for all of you listeners out there, all of Jason's friends out there riding around Central Park. I remember my time in the New York City scene. It was nothing but new bikes, nothing but the best, nothing but the fancy stuff, and the poor guys out there must be riding on their 2020 stuff thinking,
1: ugh, oh, these 2020 yeah. zip wheels, so gauche. <laughs> I- no, it, yeah, these are nice problems to have, I imagine, but, uh, uh, you know, it, this sort of speaks to, though, what I think is one of the things that makes cycling such a fun sport to write about is that the intersection of you know, the consumer, uh, and the sport, you know, like people don't get into baseball podcasts and start talking about gloves and like, you know, hats, uh, you know, this is a a sport where the equipment is readily available almost always to the the riding public. And oftentimes the people who are doing laps in central park are riding on nicer stuff than the professionals themselves are. Uh, so I like that part of it. And I think it makes, you know, for a pretty energized readership, uh, you know, to your point earlier. Well, and I think
0: that, to your point earlier, was one of the reasons why 2020. 2020- was such a weird year and such a bummer of a year in that we had professional events back, but we didn't have any mass participant events back. And journalists like me had to cover the professional events while sitting in our spare bedrooms that had been converted to bad offices (coughs) and using these quotes sent distributed off of WhatsApp that were really bland and we couldn't attend the events, but we also couldn't attend mass participant events. But Jason, I am here to let you know that mass participant bike races are back in a big big way and I have now gone to two races one of which I participated in myself I raced my bike I went to the Iron Horse Bicycle Classic a few weeks ago in Durango raced my own bicycle for the first time since 2015 it felt so good and I'm here to tell you Jason that like you know we are we're all kind of been in this process of emerging from the pandemic if you're vaccinated you know you go to the store the first time you forget your mask yeah. the first time you hug <laughs> someone and you don't like freak oh, yeah, out yeah and I got to say Going to a mass participant bike race, it was that was like the moment where I was like, We're back, baby. We're back. Like real life is back. I'm at a bike event, people are high fiving me, and, uh, and and the world the world has returned. So I encourage you, Jason. You know, you do you have any events coming up, mass participant events, sport events coming up?
1: Yeah. Yes, uh, America will be fully returned to normal, Fred, when I'm being spun off the back of a master's race. You know, that is a, that is a real signal that things will have uh, gotten right back to the norm.
0: Love it, but I, I encourage you to do it. I encourage the listeners to do it. I mean, if you are vaccinated and if it's within your comfort zone, I got to say, like, going back to a bike event, and then I was at Unbound Gravel, you know, the, the former Dirty Kansas, the Super Bowl of gravel racing, and that was another experience where it was like the American bike scene, back in full force, competing, feeling good, the attitudes and the amount of joy being exchanged by people at the start line and the finish line was another sort of a, wow, we're moving back towards the way it used to be. And it was another affirmation of like, man, the power of mass participant bike events, You know, the power of collective bike events. I, I, I had really missed it.
1: Yeah. And, and look, we respect Zwift and what Zwift has done for cycling uh it continues to do but it's nicer to do it in actual outdoor spaces I I support it entirely and it's trickling back here in New York they put the finish line at the top of Prospect Park Hill near where I live in Brooklyn and uh they're out there doing mass start races uh Fred I can probably sneak you in this weekend you got a nice little uh two three affair with 110 Starters, it might be full, but we could sneak in there. 17 laps, nice way to spend 5.30 a.m. to 6.45 a.m.
0: Yeah, but well I have to course marshal, too? That was always sort of part of the trade-off. Because if you wanted to participate, yeah. in the dance, you had to do a few weeks of course marshalling. And some people would kind of buy their way out of it, but I never could. In fact, I think I'm still on the CRCA's like no go list because I missed a couple.
1: Yes, yes, yes. No, there, there, there are people at the entrances to all the parks in New York with your photograph, uh, seeking to prohibit you from entry.
0: I love it, New York City cycling scene. You know, we've been doing this series with uh, Major Taylor Iron Riders, where they've been writing these columns yeah. for us every two weeks, and reading these columns has been so enlightening about their experience in cycling. But so great for myself, selfishly, because it's the you know reminds me. Of the cycling scene there. And this past weekend, we had this gentleman, Lorenzo Brown, talking about his love for European cycling and how 10 years ago he started to go over and ride the Stelvio and it blew his mind because up to that point he had been just riding Prospect Park and Central Park. And to him, like the the state line climb on 9W was like the climb. And then all of a sudden he's yeah. on the Stelvio and he's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like... This is,
1: this is totally different. No, it's a phenomenal place to, to ride. And if you haven't had the experience, I highly recommend jumping in at some point. Either get to one of the parks or get to a race at Floyd Bennett Field when they get that going again. Because that's also a pretty unique experience. That's a that's a, basically a criterium on an abandoned airfield. Uh, and uh, don't hit that tarmac, Fred. You know that rule.
0: No, that, that is cheese grater tarmac. And it's tough. I mean, I always tell people, you know, I love riding out here in Colorado. And when I moved to New York city, I thought I was never going to ride a race. And I raced way more out there like 50 times. Yeah. than yeah. I did here yeah.
1: way more great bike scene, thriving cycling community. Well, and now we have the, 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 the exciting ingredient to the bike lanes here in the city and, and the parks are just the enormous number of e-bikes, not just e-bikes, but e-everything e-unicycles, you know, e three wheelers. Um, it's, it's really a wild scene now. and, You know, I keep reminding these people who are going like 30 miles an hour that there are, in fact, Tour de France scouts uh, for every one of the major world tour teams on the West Side Highway, in Prospect Park, at the top of the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, looking to see if you can actually push 350 watts up the Brooklyn Bridge. They might offer you a slot. So it makes things pretty exciting and lively around here. Yeah. I mean, before we get on to the Tour de France, that's a question
0: I have for you, Jason, which is that, you know. As we've kind of started to emerge from the pandemic, we are seeing um, behavioral change. And one of the changes that happened to people in the pandemic was, like you said, there's bike shortage, more people riding bikes, more people going to outdoor exercise, getting away from gyms, seeking outdoor opportunities, commuting by bike, commuting by electric scooter, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what tangible change have you seen on the city streets of New York City where already the bike lanes were pretty crowded with just traditional push bike cyclist and now you do have e-bikes and you have one wheeled tech bro scooter thingies and you have you know guys on electric skateboards and stuff like that what what tangible difference have you seen in the in like the bike slash commute scene in new york city
1: i mean there's just incredible creativity of design and uh manufacturing now i mean you just see these i I feel like not a week goes by that i don't see some sort of new electronic apparatus out there um i should say very explicitly i support e-bikes one thousand percent i think they are an incredible uh asset to the cycling community i want to see as many people as possible uh you know get introduced to cycling whether they stay e-bikers or they move to pedal powered bicycles any version of it i support i look at an e-bike not as competition for cycling but as not a car and that's a huge part of this and what you're describing with regard to new york city is an environment where more and more people are recognizing the beauty and the convenience of cycling of e-bikes but the city is still not making any sort of alterations to vehicular traffic in the city. They're not, you know, changing its relationship to the car and they're not doing it fa- or they're not doing it fast enough. I mean, this city is very, very slow to act. There was enormous progress made with you know, creation of some lanes and the city bike system here in the city, of course. But there's still not enough has been done. And I think that the congestion issues that you describe on paths and so on that's entirely a product of the fact that we are just completely beholden to the automobile still in the city and just refuse to take anything away from cars. Um, there's a conversation that's still ongoing and it seems to be something that's going to happen where they're going to actually create a cycling lane on the Brooklyn bridge. Fred, when that happens, you got to come over here and we can do that. Cause that'll be remarkable. Cause one of the things that if you've ridden in New York city in the last, I don't know, 20 years, like the Brooklyn bridge is, especially in the warmer months, a no-ride zone. It's it's just full of people and lively, and you know, baby strollers and all kinds of stuff. And you just don't want to be like riding a bike at any kind of speed on that. It's not convenient for you. Um, but they're going to create this new thoroughfare, and if that happens, I think that'll be the most significant, you know, bike adapt adaptation in the city because it will literally mean taking space away from cars. Um, and I just think that this is the way things are going, and it needs to happen.
0: Um, how long until some? Uh, Dingbat tries to get the Strava on the uh, Brooklyn Bridge.
1: Um, I mean, well, um, it exists actually on Strava as of the actual bike lane, the wooden slatted bike lane. Uh, But I don't know about the new one. When the new one happens, I'll let you know.
0: The Brooklyn Bridge was always a mystery to me. I would tell people who are cyclists, like, do not use the Brooklyn Bridge for riding at all. It is so full of tourists. They are all looking at their phones, are staring off into space and walking in the bike lane. And you will just, it is like, it is an exercise in futility. And I remember one of my first uh, rides to Brooklyn when I lived in New York City, I rode up and over the Brooklyn Bridge and there was a guy who was just doing laps back and forth on the Brooklyn Bridge with an extremely loud horn. And he was honking it at people who were in the bike lane and then screaming at them. And I saw him on the way over and I saw him on the way back. And I was like, is this man, does this just do this all day? Is this some poor man with pent up rage? And to get it out, he just goes back and forth on the Brooklyn Bridge and honks at uh, tourists from Germany and Italy and scares them half to death. Uh, if you, sir, are out there, please email Jason because he has a column he would like to write about you. Yes,
1: absolutely. absolutely. I mean, listen, it's, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody during the – big parts of the day. But if you can get out there early, early morning, it still is the Brooklyn Bridge. It is a pretty incredible, you know, mile to span. And, uh, you know, maybe you can take that KOM. That's true. Um,
0: Jason, I have some uh, questions I want to ask you about some Tour de France stuff, some stories that we might see break it into the mainstream, and then and then some stories if you've written about um, recently. First, let's talk tour. You know, there are a number... Of storylines that in the cycling world, for hardcore cycling publications like VeloNews, are obviously of interest. And that, of course, is who is the the best Slovenian stage racer out there, Tade Pogacar or Primoz Roglic? Um, you know, how deep is Team Ineos's uh, Grand Tour roster going to be? How do you win a Grand Tour with four leaders like Richie Port, Richard Carapaz, Geraint Thomas, and Teo Gegenhart? Um, I can see by the look on your face that probably none of these stories are going to break into the mainstream uh, no. consciousness here. But but the one story that, that you wrote about earlier this year that definitely could do it is Mark Cavendish. Cav! Oh, lucky Cav! Oh, the cuddly teddy bear making his
1: return to the Tour de France, age 36. I, I, I you know... Let's step back a second. The, a week ago, this appeared to be a fantasy. This was not something that was going to happen. In fact, when he won those stages at the Tour of Turkey a couple months ago, when I had an opportunity to talk to him about it and this comeback and just getting to the line first and what a moment that was for him. If you were to have raised the prospect of him in the Tour de France, who would have been laughed at, even then? Uh, and as little as a week ago, it looked like Bennett was on. And then, you know, cycling pulls out the big surprise yesterday. Uh, and, and, you know, we heard that, you know, Bennett was on, Cavendish didn't want to do it. Cavendish wanted more money to do it. Quickstep wasn't confident. And, you know, and, and what a surprise to have happen. And it's such a funny thing that to see the sport so sentimentally attached to a rider who was obviously, at, you know, in his prime, the young, you know, Arabist who was, you know, shaking up the sport and was, you know, of beast of emotion and 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 now is the sort of as you described this like warm cuddly story this dad who's like never thought he was going to get back there at this race and is getting a chance to get out there again and gosh i mean who knows i mean uh, he's going to be going against the best of the best and were he to pull off a stage at this it would be pretty legendary i mean he's you know the people will focus on the the stage wins he's got 30 Merck says 34 Whether he would close the gap, I mean, guys, that's asking an awful lot. Just to get to this race is an enormous thing.
0: Yeah. Oh, to be uh, a fly in the wall in the emails between uh, Patrick Lefebvre and Cavendish and Cavendish's agent and uh, Bennett and Bennett's agent about this, because I know in the, in the headlines over the last few days, it's been like Bennett had a knee thing. And now he's saying, well, actually, I was feeling better. I just wasn't fit enough. And Lefevre's throwing Bennett under the bus. And, you know, you could tell that he's grumpy, that he's having to bring Cav instead of Bennett, who probably has a better chance to win stages, defend the green jersey, et cetera etc. I'm happy for Mark Cavendish. I'm gonna dump a little bit of ice water. Okay, a huge bucket of ice water on the in general though. Um can, there's maybe two stages that Cavendish has a chance of winning. And uh I think there's a good chance that he gets time cut in one of these Alps stages, unfortunately.
1: Right. I mean the variable here is that he's got a great team around him. And the question then becomes What sort of resources will they put around him? You know, will they be, you know, trying to help him get through those alpine stages as you described, or will they be committing elsewhere? You know, they obviously have other stage win ambitions and they have a world champion with Julian there. So I think that if Cavendish can continue with his attitude that he's
0: had of being this sort of gracious champion who is being publicly very appreciative of the attention and the opportunities given to him, then this will absolutely be a successful tour I think where it starts to go wrong is when you know the results aren't there and there's some scrutiny and some stuff written in the press and then the old like uh angry angry cab comes out and hits back at the quote-unquote
1: haters I suspect he's turned a corner if you follow what he said in the last like 48 hours since this decision has come out you know the humility that he's expresses is is you know seems sincere um and I was thinking like is there an analog here to like we see this in American sports where like the young star turned wily veteran signs on for one last crack at a ring, whether it's, you know, World Series or the NBA or something else. And like it has elements of those vibes. But again, like, it's more than just this individual signing on. You have to sort of have a strategy built around that. I'm curious what like Julian thinks about it and like how that's going to work with his goals and ambitions for the tour. and. I don't know. Quickstep is always interesting personality-wise. Uh, so we'll, uh, that will be one of the more interesting sub I think that actually this race is one where the, the sort of what you would consider the second-tier dramas... Uh, are more interesting, candidly, than the GC converse, conversation, which I think is a rather limited group of people who are going to have a chance to win this race and the sort of other stories about, you know, some of our great one-day racers in there. You have MVDP in there um, with his team for the first time. I think those races, that those, those stories are going to be bigger and, and in some cases probably dwarf the conversation happening around the GC until late.
0: Yeah, especially with the Olympics looming and some of these riders who are really hoping to do well in the Olympics and how long will they stay in the tour and how will how will they treat the tour? And, you know, there's always this sort of push and pull in an Olympic year between the Tour de France and the Olympics, because, you know, look at look at Greg Van Avermaet. It's like. Greg Van Avermaet won the Olympics, so the Olympics is the biggest thing for him ever. But for the riders who don't win the Olympics, they kind of have this attitude of like, "Ah, eh, you know, I'd rather have a tour stage or a classic win or whatever, you know, but it's like it's like the Olympics the Olympics is like that uh that thing that like you you know, the cool kids like aren't saying they're it's like the party you're saying you're not going to go to, like, "Yeah, I'll go." <laughs> Yeah, whatever. Maybe. But when they get there, then they're like, yeah, man, I've been planning for this for a while.
1: Well, let's not forget, it's unpaid. Uh, And, uh, you know, but don't you think that they look at GBA's uh, gold helmet and say, man, I want to wear that gold helmet for five years like he got to. I mean, the extra year in the gold helmet. How great was that?
0: Oh, yeah. And, And of course, take note, this is for men's professional road racing. For all the other cycling events out there, the Olympics are the pinnacle, the top, top, top. Careers are made. Tears are shed. Huge emotions and um, lots of energy are expanded. But it just seems like for men's road racing, you know, so, some of the guys would happily trade a Tour de France stage win or the Tour de France overall for uh, Olympic gold. But I'm with you. I think GVA. GVA has done a good job. Oh, Golden Craig. So what are some of these other second tier stories, Jason, that you're going to keep an eye on? I mean, we have Americans. We have Nielsen Paulus, who is yeah. returning after a very aggressive 2020 Tour de France. I mean, it, in a typical fashion we don't have very many Americans on the start list. The Giro has become sort of the, the American grand tour, but um, you know, the, the green Jersey can Peter Sagan come back and win it again. The sprints, the, the time trials, this isn't your typical, like short, uh, 150 kilometer back-to-back-to-back climbing stage tour this is more of a traditional time trial tour
1: sure i mean listen you have you know the obvious showdown between uh, van art and and uh van Der Poel, and having that rivalry occur over the course of a three-week grand tour depending on uh, how long of course they stay in the race um will be really compelling because you know there are unquestionably two of the most talented athletes in the entire sport. Um, they possess a remarkable set of skills. The fact that Van is going to the Olympics, then to race in the mountain biking, is extraordinary just into itself. Um, so I think people will be watching that very closely. And I, I think, you know, the momentum in the sport, and I think it sort of parallels alongside what we've seen in the last year and a half of the pandemic shutdown, is that cycling, you know, sort of became a sport of the long individual ride the, you know, the sort of off-roading this person who was sort of agnostic about, you know, competition and, you know, got drawn into things like Everesting and stuff that Lachlan Morton has been doing and like all that kind of stuff. And I think that like that dovetails nicely with like you know, what kind of rider, you know, Matthew and, and, and what are because they're not people who, you know, are one thing, you know, cyclists feel increasingly like they want to do all the things. And so, you know, the GC or the tour uh, uh, stage race is, you know, it, it's specialist culture, it's sprinters, it's climbers, it's like, you know, and so I think that sort of seeing a throwback to all rounder culture in a grand tour will be interesting.
0: I know, especially if some of these guys get let off the leash a bit, I would imagine Wout Van Aert is probably going to play a similar role to what he did last year with Jumbo Visma, of, like just crushing people's hearts for Primo's Roglic, but he could win some bunch sprints. But I'm with you. It's funny. At uh, Unbound Gravel, I ran into a, uh, a former colleague of mine. We had worked at Velo News back in sort of like the 2004, 2005 range. And we got talking about Van Der Poel and Tom Pidcock and Van Aert. And we're like... Doesn't – like think back to 2004 and 2005 and what you thought a professional cyclist was. And it was like, oh, he is a climber. Oh, he is a sprinter. Oh, he is a time trialist. And now you have these three guys coming in all at the same time who are like, oh, he's a cyclocross racer and a mountain bike champion and a great classic star. Oh, and he can win time trials and win bunch sprints. And it's like you look at – the skill set of these three guys and think that, you know, wow, Vanderpoel can beat Nino Schurter, like the best mountain biker ever. And they're the two best cyclocross racers ever. And it just throws the mold of cyclists that we had for a good solid 25, 30 years completely out the window. And, you know, much like we've seen with Steph Curry in the NBA, where like him doing things with three pointers has now created this new generation of NBA players who just all can like, hit a three-pointer from 35 feet. I'm really wondering if the next generation of pro cycling, if we're going to see more of these all-rounders, people who kind of like break the mold, buck the trend, and want to excel in multiple things instead of just growing up being like, oh, I I will be a climber.
1: Yeah, I I hope so. And and you're leaving out another important part here, which is that, you know, this is happening, uh, this came to be at a time when people were very concerned that cycling had become incredibly predictable and analytic-based, that people were just so reliant on technology, performance technology, to dictate how they rode, their strategy in racing, and that races were becoming mechanical and dull. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, well, not out of nowhere, but you know, all of a sudden the sport is overtaken by these, you know, all-rounders who race you know obviously they have the benefit of technology too but they're also you know racing with their heart and showing the panache and the passion of the things that the old school fans like to see and so it has this you know double benefit of these guys are just naturally fun to watch no matter what but it was it came at the right time for a sport that was kind of falling down the rabbit hole of uh of power meters.
0: And of course, it goes without saying that this is again resigned to men's professional road racing. Mariana Voss is listening to this podcast right now, just being like, Pff,
1: yeah. It's a really important point. It's a really important point. And it's something that I think that. If anyone's looking for a reason to watch women's cycling, the thing that we are being so rapturous about in men's cycling has been part of women's cycling from the jump, always. And it has been full of champions who are multidimensional, who are climbers and sprinters, one day racers, stage racers, and it, the fields are rich with performers who can do all of that. And that is a really compelling reason to follow women's cycling because if you like that ingredient in men's cycling, if you like the stuff that Vanderpoel and Van Ardu. do, well, there's a lot of people in women's cycling who are capable of that.
0: And capable of so much more. Jason, I got to tell you, you know, tangent here. Um, we'll get back to our conversation. The other The other week I was at Unbound Gravel and uh, I did this interview with this uh, woman on the Tipco Silicon Valley Bank team, Emily Newsom, And I got to say, most one of the best interviews, most pleasant, wonderful interviews I've ever done before. So she's a professional road cyclist, also does gravel, classically trained pianist, mother to a six-year-old. Like has had this amazing life up to this point, still performs, um, speaks about the emotion of cycling and the emotion of music. And it was unlike any interview I've done in a really long time. And it was one of those light bulb moments going on again, again, yet again. I mean, this happens every time I feel like I have a long, long interview with a uh, women's cyclist where I'm just like, ah, oh, these people, are, they're, they're not just amazing athletes. These people tend to be just like
1: really amazing people full stop period sure and think about the commitment behind the scenes to like get there and to like be able to juggle all these things i have a six-year-old at home i can barely handle that much less uh, compete at a high level in anything um and i think that you know that we have the tour de france uh for women is coming back in 2022 which is an eight-stage race which will be interesting to see you know it's good that it's revived i hope there is a significant investment in aso and they're looking at this not just as like, all right, let's see how it goes next year, but as like a three, a five, a 10-year plan to develop this and seed it. Because as you described, the stories are there. The athletic talent is obviously there. Um, you, you do need to seed it and you do need, need to grow it and you do need to like invest in it continuously, not just a, do it as a one-off. Um, and I'm hoping that will happen because I think this board is ready for it.
0: Me too. And, you know, I think that if you do start to put some of these components back in a women's tour to France, a women's tour of Spain, you know, more long stage races and big one day races, uh, I think that some of the races have already proved that the TV audience is there, uh, especially internationally. I mean, you look at some of the numbers around international cyclocross events and some of the classics, and it's like the TV audience is there. People like to watch bike racing. It's not like, oh, women's bike racing is not interesting bike racing. It's like, ah, you just need a little time to build the storylines and to build the excitement. But if you put it on television or a live stream, people will absolutely watch it. And then, and then you start to see a dynamic happen, which which we're seeing in the States here, which I was thinking about this as I was looking at the uh, Olympic team that was announced, which is, you know, the story in women's cycling in the United States used to be a fairly similar one, which was, hey, you know, really talented athlete, crossover sport, maybe from soccer, tennis, running, swimming. Picks up bikes a little bit later than life, you know, college after college gets hooked. And now it's like I was looking It's like Ruth Winder, teenager, Kate yeah. Courtney, teenager, Megan Jastrup, like nine years like, old. You know, you look at the current crop of Olympians and it's like they've been doing it for a long time. They got into it through Nike. Or as, you know, with them, these youth programs and they've stayed with it.
1: And that's precisely what we're talking about here with the investment. I mean, NICA is obviously that wasn't like a one year thing. That is a very long standing program of development. And it wasn't something that was going to pay off immediately. And so professional racing should be looking at it the exact same way. Cycling has an opportunity to be a big ten. It has this enormous advantage, which you really only see at a professional level in like men's and women's tennis, of having these marquee events where everyone is participating participating in it and you can draw in a bigger crowd just an incredible cross-section of people because there's something for everyone and that's the opportunity that I hope that organizers recognize here and, and develop because you see in tennis I mean it's just a remarkable asset for the sport there's nobody in tennis that would say oh you know it'd be great if we just you know had a men's Wimbledon and a women's Wimbledon that's just the most foolish idea in the world the Wimbledon is Wimbledon because it brings everybody together And again, the Tour
0: de France is almost here. Catch all the action on Flowbikes. Viewers worldwide can access daily content, including exclusive on-site coverage, in-depth interviews, expert analysis, and more. If you live in Canada, you can watch all 21 stages, live or on demand. Don't miss out. Subscribe now at Flowbikes.com slash news That is F L O bikes.com forward slash Vela News. Thanks to Flow Bikes for sponsoring this week's episode. We will catch up with you next week. Um, On that note of, you know, widening the tent, bringing more people into cycling, you know, we've been doing stories throughout the year about um, diversity efforts in cycling with Major Taylor and some of the other programs out there that are really trying to, like, create pathways to get Black, Latino, Asian Americans into cyclists. And you recently wrote about uh, one of the programs and individuals who's right at the tip of the spear doing this, Justin Williams and the Legion of Los Angeles. Uh, You know, Justin and his team dominated the Tulsa Tough weekend, and they did it to commemorate You know, they did it in sort of commemoration of this hundred year, hundred year anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. And you interviewed Justin, did a great piece in The Wall Street Journal. And Jason, I'm really curious about, um, first of all, the conversation with Justin, but also the reception to that story about what Legion and what Justin uh, were trying to do and are trying to do with this with this project.
1: I mean, I think it's very, very clear that Justin, Corey, CJ and everybody at Legion has tapped into something. I mean, they are getting a much bigger mind share of attention in the sport in the united states than comparable world tour teams i mean you know world tour teams with a zillion times the budget um they have been incredibly canny With social media, with interaction, with engagement, with fans, with humor, with video, with all kinds of stuff. I mean, this was a team that didn't race for a year. You know, they just just didn't have the opportunities to, you know, get out there and compete because you couldn't race. And yet they continued to hold people's attention and then to go out into Tulsa and obviously what was, you know, an enormously significant uh, anniversary Uh, with the Tulsa race massacre, but to perform and put the foot down the way that they did dominating across the board. I mean, I thought it was just a really thrilling athletic moment. And like a a thrill for me as a, someone who writes about sports in general, you know, whether it's tennis or the NBA finals or the Olympics, uh, it's fun to pick out something that maybe an ordinary sports consumer isn't paying much or any attention to and say, you know, you should pay attention to this and here's why. And I think that Legion and Justin and the whole team are something to really pay attention to. And, and uh, again, I mean, they will be teaching lessons I think in years ahead about how they have done what they have done in such a relatively short amount of time with a limited budget. Um, they are batting above their weight, I think is the baseball cliche. They really are.
0: Yeah. And you know, they're picking their battles wisely. Um, you know, they're dominating the crit scene and Tulsa, and that's, those are races they know how to win and they, they can win. And, I, you know, I've seen some online criticism of like, ah, oh, well, you know, you're dominating this sort of minor, minor league of cycling. Why not go over to Europe and see what you can do there? And it's sort of like, that's not the, that's not the point. You know, I sat down with Justin in 2018 at the Red Hook Crit. Um, and he was racing for Specialized and doing Fixie Crits and all these different events back then. And he kind of he kind of laid out – the he had the vision back then. He laid out the vision of what he wanted to do. Hey, I want to have this team that's really focused on, you know, African-American cycling and crits and cool events that we like. And the goal isn't to grow it to get to the Tour de France. The goal isn't to conform to European cycling as so many other – American road programs have been in the past, which is like, hey, we see what we can do over here. Then we try to go over there and prove ourselves against the best. He's like, no, I've learned through social media that I can grab attention and have influence and, you know, do what I want to do and get sponsorship by succeeding at the right events. But Broadcasting that image in the right way, you know, he won amateur Cat 1 Road Nats and amateur Cat 1 Crit Nats, not the pro. And yet he got way more attention for that than the pro road or pro Crit Nats winner because he's smart and savvy with the message and he's preaching a message that is very attractive, which is like,
1: hey, cycling doesn't just have to be for white Upper Crest people. No, 100%. And I think he's creating a new road here. I don't think that he's like relying on an old blueprint to like get people's attention here. I think that they're very smart on social media. I think he engages with people, everyone on the team engaged with people, you know, uh, in in a very creative and warm way. And I think they're telling a good story here, but it helps that they're winning. Of course, you know, to be as dominant as they were in Tulsa, you know, they came very close to having some good results in knoxville too i mean they won the women's uh race uh, national championship which was a huge win Um, but i feel like you know you're not anything in cycling until people are trying to run you down a bit i think right that's a real signal that you're clicking somehow and it's amazing to me to hear any kind of criticism of anybody suggesting that it's a feat of marketing have we forgotten that cycling in and of itself as a sport is a act of marketing is literally created for the purposes of marketing product. These are people or are human billboards marketing, you know, technology companies and industries and countries and travel and all this kind of stuff. It literally is marketing. So I, I just think that they're doing it in a way that hasn't been seen before and it's been enormously effective.
0: And honestly, Jason, when I think of it through the lens of marketing, it makes the accomplishment that much bigger. There's never been a worse time in history to launch a professional American road biking team. There's no road scene. There's no road races. The tour of California, gone. Tour of Utah, off. Tour of Colorado, gone. There is like, there's hardly any platform right. for right. the traditional right. road bike team. And what Justin Williams has done is through social media and crits and Zwift, like he got Zwift. To open their wallets in a big way, like if you look at Legion, like they have team cars, they have great kits, they have all this stuff. And when you just look at it through the lens of the 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 pathway we've been on in the market for pro road racing in the States, like it's, that's an even bigger achievement to me than like yeah. dominating the Tulsa Tough
1: Weekend. For sure. For sure. And also like you can, uh, you know, the cycling has a pretty long list of teams that have come in and spent money and tried to look cool and like dominate the scene very quickly. And oftentimes those were teams you felt bad about. This is a team you can feel good about. There's a good message here. Um, there are good people underneath it. And I think that, uh, you know, again, it's it's anomalous in that respect that they are, you know, doing things that are interesting and new and fresh. And also you can kind of feel good about the people who are doing it on the road. I want to get hit a
0: couple quick hitters before I let you get out of here, because I, I know that you have lots going on. You are coming to us from an <laughs> undisclosed uh, rec room in Brooklyn, uh, converted to an office. And I'm sure there's columns to be written and children to be chased off of, et cetera. Um, Chris Froome coming back to the Tour de France. He has been very disappointing in his comeback. Sorry, Chris, for him. We love you. But like, it's just not working. I, I'm try, I've am i been trying to think of like, what's the mainstream sports comp to the guy who's like dominant on the edge of history, gets an injury, comes back and like can not just win, but like barely compete. Um, you know, I think Bo Jackson, when he came back, he did hit a yeah. home run. But the rest of that season, yeah. it just was never really the same. Um, they said Bjorn, yeah. Bjorn Borg came back after
1: retirement and he was just like really bad like well probably the most famous example of the dramatically injured athlete to come back and actually ascend to the top of the sport again was ben hogan in golf uh and uh you know he was in an automobile accident and then was able to recover within the space of a year and get back to winning championships usually of course it goes the other way and Bo is an interesting example i mean he was the multi-sport athlete too which made it you know factors more interesting. But in Froome's case, I mean, this goes back to what we are talking a little bit about with the Cavendish enigma, which is that, uh, it's not just Chris Froome getting himself back. It's not an individual athletic performance. You also have to build a team around him and him moving to Israel startup nation. That was a big deal. Of course, he was the marquee signing for that team. Um, but you know, it doesn't work if he's not up to being the guy right and so i think you can jump in here and correct me if i got this wrong but i believe that michael woods is going to be the guy for the team at the tour and that for him if he can grab a stage win that would be a miraculously great result for him and he i think he has said as much but but woods is the is the go to person here is that right
0: yeah that's correct and i mean in some of these early races like Romandie and you know dauphine it's like you know, Froome's getting dropped on rollers and on transition stages and on the flats. And that's a, a real sign that it's like, ah, oh, that's that, – you know, he's not anywhere close to being back. And yeah. it's it's a bummer. I mean, it was – you know, it goes without saying. It was a horrible injury. The guy could have, you know, not been walking again, let alone racing up The bike. The fact that he's racing again this – you know, two years later – is a testament to you know his work ethic and science but if it's not there it unfortunately it's just it goes down as another example of like you know catastrophic injury on the verge of history the athlete wasn't able to come back unfortunately
1: yeah you know and and uh, you know in fairness to him you know he has had a remarkable career you know full stop he you know there's no shame and you know whether it's, you know, a lack of success at the tour or a career that, you know, the winds down gradually here that's what actually usually happens and is supposed to happen what's weird is that we're in this era across sports now where we have 50 year olds winning the pga championships 43 year olds winning the super bowl um a 46 year old winning the indianapolis 500 um you know people who are age defiant across sports now and then we look at chris Froome and we're like come on you know you should have like x amount of years left and you know the truth is that that injury is enormously difficult to come back from but the fact is that also that he has been at this for a long time and that this is the natural atrophy that happens with athletes
0: well it's one of the big stories we're obviously going to keep watching Um, Jason thank you so much for coming on the podcast you have been a wonderful co-host again I will always look forward to this annual tradition and we will have you on again and again and again but um, for those listeners out there Jason Gay the Wall Street Journal you can read his columns online in the newspaper and uh, where else can they follow you?
1: Oh, geez. Uh, they can follow me in a bike race because I will be behind them for sure, dropped, pulled over to the side, panting. Um, but uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Jason Gay. Uh, and uh, I, I, I'm avoiding the space pad and MySpace and Insta Google and all that right now. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Fred.